Uh, good morning. My name is Tara George. I'm one of the pastors here. And if this is your first time visiting with us, welcome. We are so glad that you are here with us. Uh, if this is your first time, we are in a sermon series on the book of Ephesians, uh, looking at what the gospel is and what does it mean practically for our lives. And this morning, we are also at the end of our series. This is the last chunk of this letter. So well done. We covered a whole Bible book. Look at that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, you have, if you have your bulletins, you can flip to the back, and there's the uh, scripture reading there. And so I'd ask you to give your attention to the reading of God's Word now. Our reading today comes from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith which, which, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is the word of the Lord. Speak God. Thank you. June 11, 1944. It is the day that the Allied troops successfully took five beaches in Normandy, France, back from German control. A battle that seemed at first to be a lost cause turned into one of the greatest military victories that the world had ever seen. You see, what happened at Normandy was a pivotal event that turned the tide in the fight against the Nazis. It would take one more year before the war was finally won. But every Allied soldier who fought after the events of Normandy knew without a doubt that victory was close at hand. The most critical battle against the enemy had already been won. Winning the war now was just a matter of time. You know, as we come to our passage this morning, I think Paul reminds us of a similar series of events. It was in the year 33 AD when a battle more pivotal than that of Normandy was fought. It was a battle at Calvary. History tells us that in that place, Jesus, the God-man, went to war on our behalf with that powerful enemy, the devil. Christ was tortured, mocked, and crucified upon a Roman cross. And there he died in our place for our sins. But you see, a battle that seemed at first to be a lost cause, ironically turned into one of the greatest military victories that the world has ever known. What happened at Calvary was a pivotal event that turned the tide in the fight against Satan. And it may take many more years before the war can finally be won, 
but I tell you the truth. Every Christian soldier who fights after the events of Calvary should know without a doubt that victory is close at hand. You see, the most critical battle against the enemy has already been won. Winning the war now is just a matter of time. This is Paul's final message to the Ephesians. In our passage today, he asks and answers two simple questions, and they are these. First, who do we fight? And second, how do we win? Who do we fight and how do we win? Let's look at each of these in the passage. Well, if you're just joining us, Paul has spent a great deal of time telling us about the gospel. Over the last several weeks, he's been teaching us what it means to become a Christian and what it means to practice the faith in everyday life. And it's here, at the end of his letter, after training and instructing his readers in the faith, that he finally reveals to us the full implications of the gospel. And it is this, that God and every person who follows him is right now at war with a spiritual enemy. Paul concludes his letter with an exhortation in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Now, he's going to talk about this armor a little later and what it means to fight, but for now, Paul wants to first educate us about the war and make us aware of our spiritual enemy. The enemy, he says, is the devil, and the Bible calls him Satan. Now, if you've been tracking with us through the series, you may remember that Paul actually told us about this enemy earlier in his letter. In chapter 2, for example, Paul taught us that before we believed in Jesus, we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. That is Satan. In fact, so close was our allegiance with Satan that Paul actually says his spirit had this compelling influence over us. In some mysterious way, Paul claims that every person, whether religious or irreligious, has at one point or another listened to and obeyed the voice of the devil, and not that of God. Just as Satan is an enemy of God, he made us enemies with God. And the result of this is that we listened to him and rebelled against God. We did. And carried on living in whatever way we thought best with no regard for God or anybody else. That's what Paul has been teaching us so far in this letter. But, but he has argued, God has saved us. The Lord has personally gone to war with the devil on your behalf and has plucked you from behind enemy lines. Although we were once enemies of God because of our sin and rebellion, God has changed that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. By believing in him, we have now been forgiven of our sins, reconciled to God, and adopted into his new family. He has given us new power now and new purpose to live as new people in the service of his kingdom. In other words, we have now become allies with this God through a peace brokered by Jesus Christ. And listen, that implies wonderful blessings and benefits, all of which Paul has been describing to us over the last several weeks. 
but it also has certain consequences. You see, the enemy who wages war against God and His purposes now wages war against you. That's what he's saying. And you are called, Paul says, to stand against his schemes in battle. Verse 11. So, what does that mean? Well, I think he's reminding us the devil's purpose is to undermine God's work in your life. Namely, through leading you astray, tempting you to sin, and causing you to compromise what is most essential to the faith. This is what Satan does in the lives of believers. Now, for the unbeliever, you have to know that Satan wars with you also. You may not believe in him, but that is actually to his credit. Paul writes elsewhere in 2 Corinthians that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel. He's basically saying that Satan's purpose is to keep men and women trapped in unbelief and enmity with God because he himself is an enemy of God. And therein lies a cosmic battle that the Bible says has been raging on for millennia. And wherever you are in your spiritual journey this morning, you have to know that you are smack dab in the middle of it. That's what Paul is saying here. Look with me at the passage. In verse 12, Paul goes on to tell us what kind of war this is. Paul says of the Christian that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. These are not human, earthly entities that we fight. Rather, Paul says, we wrestle against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That is uh, quite a description, isn't it? This is the foe that you and I are up against. I mean, Paul doesn't mince words here. He has a strong conviction that there are personal forces of evil around us and that they oppose to God and everything good that he desires. This enemy is not flesh and blood. By that, Paul means that he cannot be so easily detected because he doesn't occupy the physical realm like you and I. We cannot see him clearly, and yet we feel his corrupting effects every day. Paul is saying that this enemy has resources, leverage, and control over the world and its people in ways that you and I can't even imagine. For Paul, Satan constitutes a real, personal, demonic force in the world that is responsible for evil. And he wants us to take his words Seriously. Now, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I would imagine that you might have some difficulty with this passage. Many of us, I think, would have trouble entertaining the idea that there are personal forces of evil at work in the world that we cannot see with our own eyes. Maybe you're wondering, what evidence is there to suggest that these things exist? And that's a great question. It is. And to that, I want to say two things. I want to say two things. First, you have to know that Paul's original readers believed what he had to say on the basis of their lived experience. First century historians like Josephus provide credible evidence that there was indeed demonic activity occurring at the time, whether through possessions, exorcisms, or the occult. 
The ancient world saw evidence of spiritual evil in their culture, and they believed it. Paul believed in it, and Jesus believed it also. In fact, even Jesus' contemporaries and opponents recognized that he had extraordinary spiritual power over demons. They saw it with their own eyes. There are rabbinic traditions, for example, that attest to the fact that Jesus was a miracle worker and an exorcist. Bear in mind that these are witnesses who did not believe his claim to be God. But neither could they discredit what they saw. And so they call him a sorcerer. Think about that for a moment. These people living at the time of Jesus aren't sure whether he's good or evil, but no one, no one can test that this man has spiritual power. You take all the historical evidence together, and you'll find that there's probably more to these spiritual realities than meets the eye. Second, you have to know in the grand scheme of human history and its people, your skepticism about these things would actually be the minority position. It might surprise you to hear that the vast majority of people around the world today do believe in spiritual evil. It's not because they are somehow ignorant, superstitious, or uneducated. Here in North America, we pride ourselves on being too sophisticated to believe in these things. But that doesn't mean that they don't exist. I think it's true that in places where people believe in spiritual realities, Satan is eager to show his power. But in those places where people believe in nothing, Satan is content just as well to be happily ignored. You see, whether you believe that there's a spiritual war happening around you or not is of no consequence to your enemy. He will control you, corrupt you, and harm you nonetheless. And it's only the Bible that gives you a lens to see him for what he really is. Listen, Paul wants all of us, I think, to see that there's more going on spiritually underneath the surface than we might be ready to admit. He wants you and I to understand the war we are part of is such. Know your enemy. This is his first point. You know, secondly, Paul also wants to tell us about how to win this war. He's already told us that our battle is against a spiritual enemy, and so he reminds us here of the spiritual equipment that God has given us for war. In verse 10, Paul reiterates, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Why does he say that? It's because were you and I not given resources from the Lord to combat the devil, we would have no hope in this battle. None. He's saying this is not a war that can be fought in our own strength. It is a war that must be fought with all the strength that God supplies. How do we get that strength? Paul answers, you put on the whole armor of God. You put on the whole armor of God. In verses 14 to 17, he begins listing a number of wartime items that are meant to aid us in this spiritual battle. Look with me at the text. As we'll see, it's the application, really, of all that Paul has been teaching us about the Christian faith so far. Now, it's important to recognize that these items Paul has listed come from a certain historical and biblical context. Historically, scholars think that Paul probably has in mind the typical Roman armor as he's writing these things. 
It would have been common at the time to see soldiers all about the city dressed in many of these items. At the same time, however, at the same time, scholars think that Paul probably also has in mind his Old Testament. Biblically, you need to know that many of these items listed here actually come from the book of Isaiah. They appear in certain prophecies describing how the Lord himself is dressed as a warrior, going out to battle on behalf of his people, dressed and fully armored. What Paul is saying then is that you and I are not just fighting with some random pieces of mystical armor. No. By wearing this armor, you are donning the very power and strength of the Lord himself. In other words, if you fortify your spiritual life with the values that Paul describes, you will be able to stand firm in your fight against the devil. So, let's look at these items in order. Paul begins in verse 14. He says, first, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. What's he saying here? Well, to the best of our knowledge, we think that Paul is probably referring to a belt that was normally worn underneath a soldier's armor. It was essentially the item that held one's tunic, armor, and even his sword in place. It wasn't a special item, but rather something that was fairly basic and fundamental to warfare. And what Paul is saying is that the truth of the gospel ought to be worn by Christians in much the same way. The doctrines that he has been teaching us throughout this letter are to be studied, absorbed, and deeply ingrained in the Christian psyche. Like a leather belt that wraps around the waist, these truths are to be firmly wrapped around the Christian's mind. They are to give you a sense of inner security in times of confusion, distress, or uncertainty. The gospel's truth undergirds everything about your Christian life. And Paul is saying that it is what holds the entirety of your armor together. The truth is what enables you to stand firm against your spiritual enemy. And that matters profoundly because your enemy is a liar. Jesus himself says of Satan that he does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Do you hear what he's saying here? Throughout your Christian life, you will constantly be faced with lies and deceptions from the devil, telling you things that are not true about you and things that are not true about God. And if you don't have these truths of the gospel firmly wrapped around your mind, you will buy into those lies and you will find yourself in great peril. Men and women, to wear the belt of truth is to undergird yourself with the gospel, preach it to yourself, and practice it so the devil will not sway you. Secondly, Paul also asks us to put on the breastplate of righteousness or moral rightness. As you probably guessed, this was a piece of armor that covered a soldier's chest and back. It was an important layer of defense. In fact, God himself is set to put on righteousness as a breastplate as he goes to defeat his enemies and vindicate his people in Isaiah 59. We understand then that the righteousness Paul speaks about here is that which belongs to God. It is the righteousness of Jesus that God has imputed to us by faith. Paul has been mentioning that. We know that. 
But scholars think that Paul probably intends to say a little more than that. If you read the letter, you'll see that Paul actually talks about this righteousness earlier in chapter 4. He reminds us of what has happened when we first trusted in Jesus. He says that we put off the old self, which belongs to our former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then we put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness, in true righteousness and holiness. In context, what Paul seems to be referring to is one's Christian conduct. To wear the breastplate of righteousness means to put away your old ways of thinking, speech, and behavior. It means that we are to be fighting and resisting the sin in our lives. And as Paul taught us earlier in chapter 2, it means that we are also to be guarded, guarded against the temptations of the world, the flesh, and the devil. I think it's true that in life we'll encounter many temptations to sin. I think that's why throughout this series, Paul has instructed us about all kinds of sin. Things like sexual immorality, gossip, greed, covetousness, idolatry, theft, debauchery. The list goes on. Paul is summarizing here what he has essentially been saying throughout his letter, that in your life, you are to make a practice now of resisting these things because the devil will tempt you with them. And to be sure, there are times where you will succumb. You will fail, miserably even. You won't always win every battle. But listen, when you do fall short, the breastplate of righteousness reminds you that you can go to the one who is more righteous than you. You can confess your sins to God, lay them down, and be assured that He will renew you and assist you in your practice of righteousness. So put on the breastplate, Paul says. Thirdly, Paul encourages us here to take up the shoes for our feet, shoes that are fitted with the readiness given by the gospel of peace, verse 15. Shoes for a soldier were integral to his armor. Roman sandals in particular had been credited for the victory of many battles. They allowed soldiers speed and stability with which to outmaneuver their enemies. What's more, scholars reading this passage actually see some parallels here with Isaiah 52.7. It is a passage that depicts a herald of God's army traveling by foot in shoes and proclaiming the message of peace and salvation. In context, this herald is announcing the victory of God on the battlefield on behalf of his people. And commentators think that Paul is rereading this text in light of what Christ has done. He's saying that the message of peace is essentially the gospel itself. In fact, Paul says earlier in chapter 2 that like a herald, Christ came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. He says of Christ that He Himself is our peace, and through Him we have peace with God. Men and women, Paul is basically saying this is our war cry as we march out into battle. We are fitting our feet with a readiness to proclaim the gospel. Why? because it has the power to free people whom Satan holds captive. 
Grace Serrano, you need to know that the war you are fighting is not merely a defensive battle. You are not just sitting in the trenches, biding your time, waiting for the enemy's next attack. No, no. Rather, in the power of the Spirit, you are strapping on your gospel shoes and you are storming the very gates of hell itself. Men and women, your proclamation of the gospel is one of the most powerful and effective weapons that you have to fight the devil and his work. And yet it is the weapon we most scarcely use in our day-to-day lives. Paul is saying that to live the Christian life and neglect to tell people about Jesus would be akin to wandering around a battlefield without shoes. How much ground do you think you could possibly take back from the devil when you have bare feet? It's impossible. Grace Toronto, it's so vital that you and I build a practice of learning to communicate the gospel in our places of influence. Do you want to see your friends and family come to Jesus and have eternal life? I want to tell you that the kingdom of God will advance in the field when God's people have the courage to step out in faith. So you step out, men and women. Put on the shoes fitted with a readiness to proclaim the gospel of peace. Paul is saying that the way you make war with the devil is by proclaiming God's peace to those whom Satan holds captive. That's what you are to do. So put on these shoes and go do just that. Fourthly, Paul says in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, shield of faith with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the devil. When Paul's day, the Roman shield was long and oval. It was so big that you could actually hide behind it when an enemy was shooting flaming arrows at you. And what was customarily done was this. The shield itself was wood and lined with metal, but it would be covered with leather. I was soaked with water before the battle. And the idea essentially was this, that when the enemy shot flaming arrows at you, they wouldn't continue to burn and inflict damage. The shield that was properly treated with water and cared for was able to extinguish these flaming arrows. Paul is saying that your faith is meant to protect you in much the same way. The enemy will do everything in his power to assault you. He intends to cause anxiety, hardship, and suffering in your life to the extent that you might be moved from a deep trust and reliance on God. That's what he does. You know, I think it's true. I think it's true that there are times where you'll be tempted not to trust God and what He's doing in your life. I would imagine, actually, that in a room this size, there are probably many of us who are struggling right now to trust God in our present circumstances. The gospel does not promise you a life that is free from suffering, disappointment, and hardship. I mean, I think we often imagine that good faith means that these arrows of the devil will just ricochet off our shield and have no effect, right? Listen, that's not at all what Paul is saying here. 
He's not promising that you will never experience any damage in the battle. Quite the opposite, actually. He's saying that your shield would be pierced repeatedly, repeatedly. It will take a great many arrows in the midst of this war. These arrows will be extinguished so they won't destroy you. That is for certain. But that is not to say that they won't leave you harmed. They will not leave you unscathed. I mean, just listen to Paul's prayer earlier in chapter 3. He prays for spiritual strength for these believers. Spiritual strength. What does he ask for? He says, I bow my knees before the Father that he may grant you to be strengthened with power. How? Where do we get this power? Paul continues, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In other words, this shield of faith is to be a reminder to you of the extraordinary love of Christ and what He has done on your behalf. So that even in the midst of terrible, terrible circumstances, you would still be able to trust Him. So take up this shield that you have been given. Take up the shield of faith. Fifthly, Paul says in verse 17, take the helmet of salvation. The helmet is protection for your head and your mind. And Paul is saying that salvation, the salvation we have received, functions, functions from God the same way. Now, something that's really important to point out here, I think, is that you and I have a fairly narrow view of salvation. When we talk about salvation, we normally talk about it in a past tense. We use it to describe that moment when we first trusted in Jesus and were saved, right? And you're correct. That word certainly includes that sense. But you see, the broader context of this word salvation is also used in a present tense and in a future tense. Paul writes to the Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you. That is the present tense. Elsewhere, he writes to the Romans, he says, our salvation, our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. He's speaking about the future tense. Salvation, then, means more than just that moment when you first decided to trust in Jesus. Biblically speaking, salvation is the full culmination of all the blessings and benefits of trusting in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, for example, Paul actually speaks of this same helmet. It is the helmet, not of salvation, but of the hope of salvation. We think then that what Paul is describing here is the future implications of our salvation. To wear the helmet of salvation then means to position your head and face in such a way that you are looking straight ahead at what is beyond you. Paul wants you to know that you have a certain hope of salvation as you fight. There is victory that lies before you, even though you may not see it presently with your own eyes. 
There's a day coming, men and women, when God will finally crush his enemy. And everyone who trusts in Jesus will celebrate this victory that he has accomplished. And Paul wants to remind you that you are not fighting in vain. There is great hope and a great reward laid up for you. That's what he's saying here. So put on the helmet and keep that in mind. Sixth, Paul says in verse 17, take up the sword of the Spirit. Unfortunately, we don't have to piece together what Paul means here. He tells us plainly, it is the Word of God. It's the Word of God. In context, there is everything that God has said to His people which He intends for all time. It is the Bible. And Paul is saying that this Word, empowered by the Spirit, is a force to be reckoned with. It is. The author of Hebrews says in his letter that the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This Word has power. It has power for you and others. It is the primary way in which we are instructed, encouraged, admonished, corrected, and equipped to obey the will of God in our lives. And that's so important. That's so important. Because you can have every kind of spiritual armor that Paul has listed here. But if you don't have a sword, you are completely unarmed before your enemy. Paul is exhorting Christians everywhere to take the Word of God seriously. You must read it, study it, and uphold it unashamedly before yourself and the culture you live in. Why? It's because through it, you are enabled to hear the voice of your commanding officer. You are able to hear the voice of your commanding officer speaking to you about your needs exposing to you your weaknesses, guiding you in the truth, and encouraging you in battle. I don't think I need to tell you that there are many voices, opinions, and perspectives in our culture that will compete for your attention and your obedience. Our city has an abundance of views on things like gender, sexuality, marriage, abortion, and euthanasia, to name just a few. Many of the voices you hear will run contrary to the faith, and it's important that you know with certainty what God commands of you. The Bible has been given to you so that you can sift yourself and the culture and discern what is good and true and what is of the enemy. This is your primary spiritual weapon, Christian. It is a privilege, and it is a responsibility. So make a habit of reading the Word daily by yourself and with your family. Meditate on it, memorize it, and let it shape your life. You need it in the battle. So take up the sword. Finally, finally at the end of this description, Paul adds to all of these things, prayer. He concludes in verse 18, reminding us we ought to be praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. It feels like a bit of an aside, but Paul wants you to know that prayer is deeply, it's a deeply important aspect of this spiritual war. It isn't spiritual armor. 
but it is the means by which we exercise all of what God has given to us. The word Paul uses here to describe this prayer is the Greek word deasis. It's translated supplication and implies a request of great urgency and importance. All prayer, I think, is good and necessary. It is. But what Paul envisions here is prayer that is oriented towards the advancement of the kingdom. It is prayer that asks God for strength, for strength in such things like holding fast to the truth, fighting against sin, witnessing to our neighbors, trusting in the Lord, persevering under hardship, and obeying God's will, especially when it's difficult. It is praying for yourself and others in this way. That's what Paul is summarizing. Look, prayer for people's tangible needs is important. Don't get me wrong. It's good to pray for people's jobs, health, relationships, etc. But let that not be the only thing that you pray for. Paul is talking about prayer that is deeply connected to the ongoing spiritual battle, and you can actually see that in this text. I mean, the man is in jail as he's writing this letter. He describes himself as an ambassador in chains, verse 20. What do you notice about his prayer request? He doesn't ask you to pray for his freedom or his acquittal. He doesn't ask you to pray for his comfort. He doesn't even ask you to pray for his well-being. What do you see him asking prayer for? It's this, that words would be given to him so that he can open his mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel and declare it as he ought to. Wow. Like, really, wow. I mean, the man is on death row. And the most important thing in his mind, the most urgent request of his heart, is the continuing advance of the gospel. Like, what an incredible example. He is a prisoner in chains, but he wants you to know that he is not a prisoner of war. I mean, his ministry was so effective and so fruitful that Satan had to actually throw him into jail. And he's like, all right, here we are. What can I do for you, Lord? Who do you want me to tell? And this is the kind of mindset, I think, that Paul is asking us to have as we pray for and fight for the kingdom of God. I mean, just think, what would it look like if you and I cared about the advance of the kingdom with that kind of intensity? Grace Toronto, I'll be the first to admit that I don't pray and want for the kingdom like that. I don't. But when I look at this text, I am convinced that God wants us to become a church that is much more dependent on Him and much more engaged in praying for the work that he is doing right now in this city. Because it's a war field, and it needs God. Because look, the point of this armor is really this. God has dressed you inside and out, and he has fortified you from head to toe. You have everything necessary to stand against your spiritual enemy because you stand in the strength of the God-man who stood before you. 
He is your master and commander in this war, and his name is Jesus Christ. And so Paul says to you, Paul would say to you, be strong in the Lord now and in the strength of his might. Put on the armor, pray for the battle, and may the Lord bless you as you take up the fight. Let's pray. Triune God, we give you thanks for going to war with the devil on our behalf and setting us free. We magnify your name and we long for you to help us see you as more beautiful, worthy, and awesome than you are. If there are any of you who haven't found that freedom yet, I pray that you would set them free from the devil's lies and deceit and you'd help them put their trust in Jesus. We ask that you'd help us as a church to put on this armor and be dressed in your strength for the sake of the glory of Jesus. Make us a church that cares for your kingdom purposes, engages in battle, and prays for it. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. We have a few minutes now, I think, for questions, if Lee Mark will indulge me. <laughs> I see a finger here. I think, I think we're going to be limited to one question. Okay. Um, there's a lot of good questions here. <laughs> So I think um, one of the things that sort of a theme running here is um, how, how, do we, how do we know what is spiritual warfare and what is not? So uh, is it, can we assume things like, um, I don't know, tarot cards, yoga, etc. Are those things spiritual warfare? Are those things opening us up to the flaming, <laughs> flaming darts of the enemy? Or uh, is it more nuanced than that? How do, how do we discern as Christians what, what is spiritual warfare and when we're engaging in it and when is it not? Or is it maybe not even possible? <laughs> that's, a, that's a good question. Um, Easy question for you. <laughs> I, should, I should say first that most churches break this passage down into two to nine sermons. And I have been assigned to do this in one. So uh, I, I fully anticipate that there will be more questions about this. Uh, how do we know if something is uh, spiritual warfare? Um, well, I think, I think things that are said to do with um, tarot cards, hand reading, uh, belief in angels, all these things, uh, spirituality that exists without Jesus at the center, I think the New Testament would say this is, this is clearly not good stuff, and you ought to be very aware of that, and you ought to be very careful about engaging with those certain things. Um, I, I think there's also a tendency in the, in the church to see uh, spiritual warfare and the devil's work under every rock and crevice, and um, I, I don't think that's, that's right either. Um, you know, the, the, the Bible doesn't place the responsibility of evil solely on the devil. It is also, uh, it is also our personal sin. Uh, Paul talks about earlier in chapter 2 that there are temptations of the world, uh, the devil and the flesh, things that we ourselves have. But how do you know that, there's, um, that it's a spiritual battle that you're fighting? I think uh, it's not, not generally just, just anything in particular, but Paul, actually Paul is not even focused on telling you like, hey, uh, wh why don't you try and figure out what is spiritual battle and not? He's just telling you to fight the good fight. Really, that's it. So in some ways, you shouldn't be so focused on asking these kinds of questions, but more asking, as I'm trying to be obedient to Jesus, as I'm trying to bear witness to my neighbors, as I'm trying to advance the gospel, is there resistance? Are there barriers? Is there persecution? Any of these things? Because 
the reality of this is that spiritual warfare seems in this passage to be linked to the advance of the gospel, either in your life or in the world. It's not everything in general. Satan has lots of work, but when we talk about spiritual warfare, it has to do with the battle itself uh, and the advance of the kingdom in your life and, and in others. So I hope that's helpful. Again, I know that this was like a crash course, and we just like went through a whole bunch of different things, and you probably have more questions, so I'm happy to stick around after and, and chat with you. Uh, but uh, I think we'll, we'll, we'll close there. Uh, would you please stand uh, for our song of reflection? <laughs>